inside the garden, there was only one rule, and that's all. You can do whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want. You have free reign over the entire place. The only thing that you can't do is eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So imagine Eve's shock and surprise and confusion when a shadowy figure emerges and starts to question the essence of everything that she's known. And the tempter comes to her and he says, did God really say to you that you can't eat any tree in this garden? And I imagine with confusion and and a little bit of maybe even arrogance, Eve responds, no, no, God has given us this entire place. This place belongs to us. We can do whatever we want, eat whatever we want. The only, we have one rule. You see that tree over there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We just can't eat from that tree or we can't touch it. And hearing that one little addition that Eve makes to God's word, the tempster takes the opportunity to jump and begins to question everything that she knows about what God says and leads her to fall into sin and to step out of what God had called her to do. And you see, it seems like a very small thing, but what we learn from Eve's story is that adding even a little bit to God's word was enough to add confusion and enough to lead her down the wrong direction. And so a moment of confusion, a moment of uncertainty, and a moment of addition created a situation that for centuries would be irreparable. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel fell into a similar trap. You see, early on, it was their job to keep the people, to teach the law, but not only to teach the law, but to help keep the people from breaking God's law. And so in order to keep people from breaking God's law, they began to develop a new system, some unwritten rules or some oral laws that were to act like bubble wrap around the real law. And so in order to not break God's actual law, they had all of these other oral laws that they added to it so that you would have to go through great lengths to actually break God's law. But what happened is they started to lose their way. And what began as a way to keep up righteousness in the presence of God eventually turned into a counterfeit kingdom. The laws that were meant to protect God's law eventually ended up almost replacing God's law. And then what we find is as Christ comes into the world teaching about the kingdom, these oral laws and this counterfeit kingdom put these religious leaders in constant conflict with the one true king. Last week, we looked at the introduction of the kingdom as Jesus begins his teaching ministry in the book of Luke. And we saw Jesus walk into the synagogue and declare that the kingdom of God had come into the world and lay down the manifesto for what he came to do. This week, we're going to see Jesus, in the presence of his enemies, reveal himself to be the king. To be the king of heaven, the one who was promised, and the one that's come to make everything right and everything new. And so we're going to look at three separate instances where Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders and to look at the teaching that he lays out in the midst of this disagreement. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And we're going to read through chapter 6, verse 11. And they said to him, 
The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat, and gave it to those with him. And he said to them, "Son of The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around them at all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, as always, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the words of Christ, even when the words are difficult, even when the words cause conflict with the religious leaders of his day. God, we thank you that the kingdom of God is nothing like anything that was expected or can even be fully realized here and now. But God, we thank you that the news of the kingdom is good news to everyone. That in the kingdom there is room for people of all backgrounds and all places. And no matter what our past, no matter what skeletons hide in our closet, that Christ came to bring healing and newness. So Father, as we see today, Jesus reveal himself as king. Teach us about his authority and his power, God. I pray that you teach us to submit to that authority but also to find comfort and peace in that power as we see a king who is compassionate and merciful and loves his people with an unsurpassing love. So, Father, speak this morning as we listen and teach us about your kingdom and teach us about our king. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first thing that we see happen in this sequence of stories, is that Jesus announces his presence. That Jesus lets the religious leaders know that he is here and things are changing. One of the things that I love about the liturgical calendar, about the church year, about all the seasons and holidays that we observe in the life of our church, is it establishes a rhythm. 
in our discipline. It establishes a rhythm in our discipleship where we go through the ebbs and flows of not only the life of Christ, but the whole season of existing as a follower of Christ. And the season of Lent has its own unique rhythm that takes place. Because one of the things that is most often associated with Lent is fasting. And if you're fasting during the season of Lent, then you fast for six days every week, Monday through Saturday. But because historically on Sundays, Sundays have always been a feast day in the life of the Christian church, because every Sunday we celebrate a little Easter. Every Sunday we're reminded that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. And so Lent is the season of fasting and then feasting, and it puts us in this rhythm of remembering our need for Christ, remembering our sin and our longing and our expectation for Jesus to come and make everything right and everything new, but we also get to celebrate during that season that Christ has come and that Christ has began the work in salvation that Christ will one day complete it. But fasting isn't something new to the New Testament church. Fasting has been a part of the life of the people of God since really the very beginning. And there are a wide range of reasons why people would fast, but usually it was associated with somewhat negative feelings. Sometimes they would fast in order to earn God's repentance. We see this in the story of Jonah and Nineveh when the entire city begins to fast, hoping that God would show them mercy. We see people in the Old Testament fast when they're in need or when they're in times of difficulty, asking God to provide for them, or even out of expectation and longing, hoping that God would bring in a promise or see a promise realized in their lives. And so the Pharisees here and the religious leaders asked Jesus a question about fasting. They come to Jesus and they say, you know, we've noticed something kind of strange. The disciples of John the Baptist, John's people, they fast and they pray. And then the Pharisees, their followers and their disciples, they fast and pray too. But we've noticed, I don't know why they notice all these little things, but we have happened to notice that your disciples, they eat and drink freely. What's going on with that? Are your disciples not as righteous or holy as John's? Why don't you hold your disciples to a higher standard? But this line of questioning is continuing something that started in the verses just before this passage of Scripture, after Jesus calls Levi, or Matthew, who is a tax collector. And in verse 29, it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so they already have this issue with how Jesus eats and with whom Jesus eats with as he is in the presence of these tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees look at him and they say, you know what? If you're any kind of a good religious leader or teacher, you wouldn't associate yourself with people like this. And so they start trying to find ways to discredit Christ. And they look at his disciples and they see that they don't fast the way that other disciples do. But of course, Jesus has an answer. And he answers with a question. 
He says, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, why would my disciples fast? Why would they need to withhold from themselves? Because everything that they've longed for, everything that you've longed for, everything that you could be fasting for right now is here. I am here. The fasting that they would be offering up would be fasting, longing for God to send the Messiah into the world, to send this new king into the world. And Jesus says, you don't need to fast for that right now because I am here. I am in your presence and I am in your midst. And maybe there's nothing, well, there's things more sad than this, but there are very few things more sad than watching someone who can't really ever enjoy or appreciate what they have. And she's saying, why would my disciples act like they don't have me here? Why would my disciples act like there's something more coming? Everything they could ever want or need or desire is here. And so there's no reason for them to fast. The disciples have no reason to mourn. They have nothing to long for because the king has arrived and all of the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, this isn't a time of longing or mourning. This is a time of celebration. If you ever plan for a wedding, you know that, that can be a very stressful thing. There's a lot of stuff that goes into planning a wedding. There's a lot of things that have to happen. But in the midst of all that, what you normally find that as people are preparing for a wedding, one of the things that they try to do is to prepare themselves. People start sweating for that wedding, right? You want to look good. You have to buy your dress and your suits and all that a long way in advance. And so you want to make sure that when that date rolls around that you're going to be able to fit in it nicely. You know that there are going to be a lot of people taking pictures of you constantly. And so you want to make sure that you look your best. And so you work really, really hard leading up to it. Or if you're me, you work a little less hard or maybe not at all. But most people, normal people, try to look their best when it comes to their wedding. But they don't usually continue that. I did do this part well. I gained a good bit of weight my first year of marriage because it's a time of celebration, right? You've done all this work and all this longing, and then you have this, this incredibly beautiful ceremony where you stand before friends and family and most importantly in the presence of God and commit your lives and your relationship to one another and to God, and then you throw a party. And very rarely do you see people at their wedding reception saying, no, no, thank you. I'm still still on a diet. In fact, I'm, I'm a friend of mine from college. She just got married, and I see this on, you know, you get to see a window into people's lives and social media, and she's this crazy avid runner, ran some like 14, 15 races last year, does all the big hardcore races, one of these people that just loves running. I don't understand that concept even in the least little bit, but she's just this avid runner, and you see, you post pictures of all the things that she does to keep her diet up, and then she goes on this honeymoon, and everything in her social media for two solid weeks, they did a very long honeymoon, for two solid weeks was just pictures of food. And a lot of it, every meal, what would seem like in the span of just what a normal lunch would be, seven or eight different plates because they got married and it was time to party. It wasn't a time to withhold, but a time to celebrate. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening right there in this passage of Scripture. That he has arrived 
And he's revealing to the people gathered there that he is the king, that he is the one that was promised. And so because of that, for his disciples, it's a time of celebration, not a time of mourning. It's a time of indulgence, not a time of abstinence. But while the disciples saw the beauty in Christ's presence, the Pharisees and the religious leaders did not. And in verse 37 through 39, Jesus tells a parable. Excuse me, verse 36. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and a piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does not, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, this seems like a really random parable for Jesus to tell. It doesn't seem particularly connected with this idea of fasting. But as we're going to see in just a moment, at every turn, when the Pharisees balked against Christ, Jesus knew their hearts. And Jesus knew what was going on. And if we look at this parable of the wineskins and of the old garments, what we find is that Jesus is teaching that the new kingdom has come into the world that he's establishing the new covenant and that everything is about to change and that these Pharisees and religious leaders are on the wrong side of it. That last sentence there about drinking old wine and not desiring the new, that is an indictment on the Pharisees. He says, you're so engulfed in the old that you can't see what's in front of you. You're so burdened by the oral laws and by all the rite and the rituals that you've had for this long that now everything that you've been practicing for, everything that you've been longing for is here and I am literally right in front of your face and you can't see it. And so the judgment passed on these religious leaders now is I am the new wine. I am the new garment. I am the new wineskins and everything is about to change and nothing will ever be the same And you're going to be left behind. So we see two very different reactions to the teaching of Christ here. And in verse 35, Jesus says, There will be a day when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. Jesus says, One day I'm not going to be here anymore, and then my people will fast again. And that's where we find ourselves here today. And so whether you're fasting during the season of Lent or any time in your Christian walk that you decide to fast as a means of discipleship and devotion to Christ, we don't fast like the Pharisees. Jesus tells us when we fast, we don't do it out of an act of mourning by covering our face in ashes and putting on sackcloth, but we fast like people who are hoping for the return of Christ. We fast like people who know that one day the king who came eating and drinking will come again and we will never have to fast again. And so whether it's during this season or any other, when you fast, fast knowing that Christ the king has come and one day he will come again and that is cause for celebration. But Jesus stands in front of the people and he announces his presence. After that in chapter 6, we see Jesus declare his authority. And it's clear now that a line has been drawn. And this is going to be a constant theme through the rest of Jesus' life and ministry, that he is going to be in this constant conflict with the religious leaders. And so this line has been drawn, and we see two kingdoms revealed. 
the kingdom of God brought through Christ, and this kingdom that the Pharisees have tried to establish and are trying to hold on to, a kingdom built on self-righteousness and following these rules. And now because of that, the Pharisees are on the prowl. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them about in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, admittedly, this seems pretty petty. That Jesus is just walking through the grain fields, and his disciples just picked up some grain and crushed it and ate the grain. And that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but remember the world and the life that these people are living in. They've created all of these oral laws, all of these bubble wrap laws to make sure that people would honor the Sabbath. They took that commandment and the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath holy, and they made it this broad thing that you weren't allowed to do any kind of work or any kind of exert any effort at all on the Sabbath. And so they looked at Jesus' disciples and they saw this simple motion, but what they saw as they were breaking up the heads of grain were people violating the Sabbath law. But then Jesus again responds with a question. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, in this analogy, we can kind of see everything breaking down very clearly. Jesus is making some direct comparisons here. That the grain that the disciples were breaking up, that's the Sabbath law. That represents this bread of the presence. And then this analogy, the men that David fed with the bread, well, those are the disciples in Jesus' analogy. Which only leaves one more comparison. Jesus is comparing himself to David. Jesus is comparing himself to a king, but not just any king, but the king to whom God made a promise saying that one day one of your descendants will sit on my throne forever, that he will be the promised king to make all things right and all things new. And so Jesus is connecting those dots, revealing to them that I am that king. But just in case they were a little confused, he made it very clear in verse five. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus isn't simply saying to them, I am a king. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that I am the king. And he's not simply asserting authority over their oral laws. He's not just coming at their structure that they've created saying, listen, these oral laws don't apply to me. Jesus is getting to the core of the law itself saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I am the Lord over one of those Ten Commandments that you've tried so hard to protect. I'm the one who wrote that law and I am Lord over that law. And so in that one sentence, we see Jesus declaring supreme authority. Jesus is making the claim that he has the authority of God over God's laws. Before we get more into that, we also see that Jesus isn't simply declaring his own supreme authority, but he's teaching us something very important about the kingdom of God as he uses this illustration from the Old Testament with David. You see, in this story, David took this bread of presence that Jesus said only the priests were allowed to eat. 
And he took that sacred and that holy and that set apart bread and he took it down and he ate some himself and then he shared it with all of those people who were with him. David gave holy bread to all those who were hungry. In Mark's account of these two Sabbath stories that we're talking through today, Mark adds in a phrase that Jesus utters where he says that this man was not made for the Sabbath but the Sabbath was made for man. And he said these things that are holy and that they're set apart, they weren't designed to be a burden. They weren't designed to be a weight on your shoulders. They weren't designed to be things that you do to enter into the kingdom of God. These were designed to be things that were good for you and were made for you. And David understood that. David walked into the temple and he saw that bread of presence and he was hungry and so were his men. And so there was some bread and he used it for his own good, the way that it was meant to be used. And so Jesus is doing the same thing with the kingdom of God. And maybe that's why the Pharisees and the religious leaders hated him so much. Because Jesus was taking something that they believed was rightfully theirs, something that they had earned with a lifetime of education and a lifetime of piety and a lifetime of religious ritual. They believed that they had arrived at a point where they had some sort of elite, special relationship with God. And so there was this whole realm of spirituality. There was this whole part of their relationship with God that only they had. And now Jesus is coming and taking that off the shelf and say, this doesn't just belong to you. This belongs to anyone who is hungry. Jesus is taking these impossible standards that protected this special relationship with God and he is breaking them down. Jesus is now taking the out of reach bread of life and he's using it to feed the poor and the sick and the sinful and the needy. Jesus is taking the bread of the presence and he is giving it to the common people, to his people. And now by declaring authority over the law, Jesus was giving the Sabbath back to the people of God. Making it something that was no longer a burden. Something that was no longer a hindrance to coming into the presence of God. And he's saying, this belongs to you. To anyone who would come, to anyone who wants to take a part in my rest, come and enter into my rest without any sort of penalty, without any sort of price. This belongs to you. And so come in and enjoy it because man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for you. And what we see here as Jesus announces his authority is that we have a king who has ultimate authority over heaven and earth who can do anything that he pleases, who can make any declaration that he wants, and he uses that authority to open up the gates of his kingdom to the lost and the forgotten and the ones who felt like they could never enter at all. And so we see Jesus announce his presence and declare his authority and reveal some beautiful truth about the kingdom of God. And then we see Jesus reveal his power. And the truth is, if you're going to make these kind of claims that you have authority over the Sabbath law written by God, you better be able to back it up. This isn't a claim that you can just make randomly because if this is not true, it's blasphemy. And so fast forward to another Sabbath in verses 6 through 8. 
says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man who was there, whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So Jesus, again, on another Sabbath, enters the synagogue. As we saw last week, that was what he did on the usual Sabbaths. That was his custom, that every Sabbath he would go into the synagogues. And on this one particular instance, there's a man there that has a withered hand, who doesn't have use of one of his hands. And then we see the stage kind of set where the Pharisees are watching to see what happens. And it is deeply disturbing how often they just happen to be watching Jesus. And I don't know, I picture this probably much more over the top in my mind. And maybe it's just because of the life of seeing children's Bibles with Pharisees hiding behind trees. But I feel like they're always watching Jesus everywhere he goes. And so now they see Jesus and they see this man with a withered hand and they get really excited because they're all right. We got him. We know how this story is going to go. He thinks he's so arrogant and he thinks he's so pompous and, and he can just do whatever he wants and he has all this authority. Let's see what he does now. But Jesus knows their hearts. And then he asks them a question. Again, he brings the man forward and he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life? Or destroy it. Jesus looks these supposedly religious men in the face and he says, You think you're so smart. You think you're so good at following the law. Why don't you tell me what the law means? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's the purpose of God's law? What's the purpose of the kingdom of God? Is it to to burden people? Is it to hurt people? Is it to cause harm? Or is it to bring healing and life and newness? He says, let me show you. And he looks at the man and he says, open up your hand. And he brings healing to this man with a withered hand. And in one act, Jesus proved his claims to be genuine. You see, Jesus isn't just offering up some sort of empty authority, but there is power behind the authority of Christ. He says, not only do I have the authority of God and not only do I have authority over the law, but I have the power of God within me. I am God incarnate. And so let me show you not only the power I have, but let me show you what the Sabbath really is. Let me show you how the kingdom really works. Let me show you what the law was meant to do. I love how Luke tells the story of Christ. Because Luke layers in teaching and miracles. And so we'll see Jesus talk and we'll see Jesus teach. And then all of a sudden we'll see a section where Jesus heals. Where Jesus cleanses lepers and restores sight to blind and casts out demons. And then we'll see Jesus teach again. And it's this beautiful layered picture of Christ saying, let me teach you what the kingdom is like. And now let me show you why you should believe me. Let me teach you what the kingdom is all about and let me show you what it will one day look like when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And this should have settled it for the Pharisees. Who can see something like this happen and not be overwhelmed with the power of God in Christ? But all it settled for the Pharisees was that they hated him. 
and it just settled their hearts against Christ. And in verse 11, we see they begin to hatch a plan. It says they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And these religious leaders, as they sip their old wine and love the way that things are and don't want anything to change, they see Christ and all that he's doing. They try to figure out a way to make it stop. And they begin to hatch a plan to overthrow the new kingdom by taking down its king. Later in the New Testament, Paul teaches us that the gospel, that the good news is foolishness to those who are perishing. And there may be no more explicit example than right here in this passage of scripture as these Pharisees hear what Jesus teaches. They hear the good news of the kingdom of God and then they see the power of God through Christ as he brings healing to this man and all they can see in their minds is he shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. This isn't the way that we do things. But Paul continues by saying, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And we see this contradiction between the two kingdoms where in one moment the Pharisees saw something that should be hated and despised, but this man with the withered hand and all of his disciples and all the people who believed around him, they saw the power of God. They saw the authority of Christ affirmed through his work and through his miracle, and they saw a window into the kingdom of God, seeing that the kingdom of God is here to bring healing and wholeness and completeness from the inside out. They were able to see the power of God manifest in the king of kings. So we see the kingdom of heaven and its king make their presence known. And now Jesus has made it clear that there is no neutral ground. There's no abstaining from the kingdom of God. It's either you are part of the kingdom of God or you are not. And we find in this passage Christ present in the world, wielding authority over heaven and earth and having the power of God within him. And the Pharisees saw this truth and they recoiled and they fought against it. And for each of us, we have the calling and the implicit commandment in these passages of Scripture to not be like them. To see Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and not, with, not recoil from that, but to celebrate that and to find the beauty in that. To come to the kingdom with joy and to sit under the authority of the king who has the power to create universes and yet he uses that power to heal the broken. To sit at the feet of the king who has the authority to raise the bar to where no one would ever be able to reach it. And yet he uses that authority to take the sacred bread and break it and give it to the poor and the small and the sinful. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And so this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ before, know that's the good news of the gospel. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us are too poor to buy our way into the kingdom of God. And that while none of us have the ability to climb our way to Christ, Jesus lowered himself to meet us where we were. 
that Jesus, like King David, takes that bread of the presence, that Jesus takes what is sacred and holy that's on the top shelf that we can't get to, that he takes what was once only for the elite of the elite and the religious hierarchy. He takes that and he brings it down to the level where all of us can take and eat and enjoy the fruit of salvation. And so if you've never trusted in Christ before, then I would encourage you to come and talk with me or Pastor Adam or Pastor David after the service about what it means to trust in Christ, to be a part of the kingdom of God and to know that good news that allows the weak and the broken and the hurting and the sinners to be called children of God and to be made holy in his presence for free. If you're here and you trust in Christ, then our response to Christ's declaration of being king is to live our lives believing that. To believe that Christ has ultimate power and authority in our lives and to do what Christ has called us to do and to follow his commandments. Jesus tells us that if we love him, then we will keep his commandments. And we know that because he is a good king and his kingdom is a good kingdom, that those commandments aren't burdens to us. They aren't designed to hold us back or to keep us down, but they are designed to give us life and freedom and life abundantly. And so let's let our lives be marked by the kingship of Christ. Trusting in Christ more than we trust any other authority or institution and fearing God more than we fear what anyone can do to us. And then let's go out and mirror the life of Christ in everything we do taking what is holy and giving it to those who are in need, using our lives to feed and to care and to love and to serve and to do all the things that Christ did and to do it in the name of Christ under the kingship of Christ. Because the kingdom has come and the king is present. And so it's our job to make that good news known everywhere that we go.